all of Latin literature fits on one CD. It stopped evolving. It right? stopped evolving. Right. It's a fossil, <laughs> and because it's a fossil, you can see much more precisely how it's working because it's not changing all the time. I think that's what's really fascinating about it, and the books are great. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. There are some mild feedback sounds during the first 10 minutes of this show, but don't worry, that issue is very quickly resolved. This episode mentions stand-up tragedy quite a lot. SUT has a crowdfunding campaign with some great perks as part of it, and there's still time to get involved and help me take the show to Edinburgh this year. So go over to bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe for more details. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with James. Hello James. Hello Dave, how are you? Um, yeah, I'm good. It's a rainy day outside. It's so filthy. Then, yeah. It's filthy. If it, if it really starts raining, it'll, it'll be sonically interesting because <laughs> we're in my attic room and the skylight over the, behind you can get quite uh, enjoyably percussive. Yeah, no, that's good. I've got an attic room myself with a Lux, and it's a great feeling. It's good. I love sitting up there listening to the rain. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you because I sent you an email <laughs> two years ago, three years ago. Yeah, I think three. Where you were doing stand-up tragedy at the Leicester Square Theatre and I had an act at the time I'd learnt up a cabaret edit of the Book of Job and the great complaints in the Book of Job and I think I just emailed you and said shall I come along and do that? That was a, a very exciting offer for me. I was very excited because one of the things with Stand Up Tragedy is I, I'm, I'm always looking to find darker stuff as well as lighter stuff because I want it to have a, a lot of tonal shifts and it's, it's much harder to find darker stuff. I like the idea of treating the Bible as tragedy as well. Mm. I, I like that kind of uh, idea. Yeah. Oh, it certainly is. It's, it's the biggest, darkest thing in the whole of English literature. That's the, you know, you can't, it doesn't get much more tragic than Job standing in the wilderness, scraping the pus out of his boils with bits of pot and just letting rip a god. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. dark. Yeah. Um, I think that was one of the things that a lot of the audience sort of said after that first performance, how much, how surprised they were by how dark it was and how they that was an enjoyable surprise for them yeah yeah and we've had you back to do a lot of other bits of the bible yeah lots of bits <laughs> of the bible and uh what else i did i did what i'm really into i've got into since the bible is victorian poetry so yes. i did a lot of that in edinburgh and i think i came and did a bit of city of dreadful night as yes well, the opium addicted mad scotsman sinking into mental despair in the streets of london in yeah. the 19th century it's you know it's Good shit. The Christmas stand-up tragedy. You did a really great Victorian children's story. Oh, that the is... nasty, the nasty, the nasty kid story. But yeah, that you can't honestly believe they ever gave to children. Yeah, it's so so well, so successfully sinister in a way that I don't think, like, I don't think modern writing is as sinister as that because it kind of explains too much of what mm. the monster looks like. Whereas it's just implied, like it's just the 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 the, the mother has a tail right yeah that's right that's all it is yeah that's all all it is but those two two details are so disturbing but also the kids in that they uh it's the whole morality of it they they're naughty and they don't put the they they cause fuss and they upset the mother and the mother just says right if you do that again i'm going to go away and never see you again and they do it again and she goes away and they never see her again and the new mother comes i mean that's really brutal i don't think you should be allowed to, to do that to kids 
No, sure, but it's fun to do it to adults. Yeah, at least. yeah exactly. As adults, we can enjoy yeah. it, but uh, yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, Sunlight Tragedy is a strictly, you know, you're over 16 or whatever kind of <laughs> show anyway. So, yeah. yeah, and it was definitely fitting in that, in that. I also know you from Edinburgh as well. We were up mm. there last year together. Last year together, yeah. And the... I saw your show a number of times. <laughs> yeah, the whole stand-up tragedy crew came and yeah. saw your show a number of times. Well, we loved it. Yeah, I, I had a really good fun doing that show. Yeah, I don't think, I think I can safely say there was nothing like it on the Fringe. Yeah. I did a whole hour's worth of good old-fashioned parlour recital. From the good old days, uh, which is good because it's all out of copyright, obviously, 19th century literature. There's none of those kind of issues. Yeah. Uh, and there is reams of it. And it's just fantastic. I mean, it's good old fashioned family entertainment. So much of it is so modern in some ways, like, but also so much of it is so alien because it's from a different time. It, it's kind of a tour, the, the first one anyway. I don't know what the future ones will be like, but but it was like a tour of of poetry, sort of like starting with with the further back, the furthest back stuff, and having the big epic poem, but like contextualizing that because it is quite hard to sit through an epic poem to the modern modern. It is. I think part of it is these poems are good. The writing is just basically good. Yeah. If you say the words in the right order and you understand what they're on about, even though the audience is, you know, by 10 o'clock at night in the Banshee Labyrinth, a bit the worst for wear. And, uh, but it doesn't matter because if you know what it means, it's so well constructed. I mean, because these things were written for performance. This is, this is performance poetry. Right. You were supposed to read it out loud. Right. You went to the music hall and heard people read poems. At family gatherings your party piece you would stand up and perform a poem right so that's how it was written and it's absolutely remarkable once you just get into the swing of it and start it going that it goes like a rocket that 20 minute one the how Horatius held the bridge yes which is a 20 minute poem about Romans with all sorts of names and nonsense and like weird old-fashioned words in it it just goes like a train yeah it does go like yeah. a train but you also gave the you gave us a kind of con the context to to enjoy it more like you, you you said don't worry about the names you know yeah like you know let let them wash over you don't feel like you need to remember every single mm. name and that's that's an, an an interesting sort of you're so trained to uh pay attention to every word mm. to have someone say actually guess what some of these words they don't really matter in in, in lots of ways just mm. in, that's quite a refreshing experience i think so but I, very, but I think i yeah. think that, that applies to poetry in general one of the things that poets are sometimes a bit shy of and which audiences always like is just telling people don't applaud after this one or just sit back and enjoy it i think a lot of people when they go to poetry readings especially people who aren't poetry people and don't do it day in day out they feel a bit nervous there's something quite intimidating about a poetry reading there just is it's been made that way over the last century or so and just standing up and going right i'm just going to do this there isn't a problem yeah. If you have to cough, just cough. Yeah. If you don't want to applaud, just applaud. Okay, and then just launching into it. Actually, I think that really works. Treat. I think a lot more poets need to do that. Yeah. And so with the with the recitation stuff, you had to kind of decide. I'm not going to tell people what every single word means in here, but there's a couple that they need to know, and then they need to know that it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and they can just exactly. sit back and enjoy it, and give them permission to sit back and enjoy. And my favourite part of that show was when you well i don't know it's between rochester and whitman i think but rochester probably just about wins like and the sensibilities of of, of that poem are so surprisingly modern mm. i think uh in some ways i mean sex is you know like throughout history so there's to say it's modern is a bit weird anyway but mm. but it's a, it's a very um 
It's a very surprising poem, but very raunchy. Uh, it's, 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 it's even more modern than modern. I think what's great about the Rochester is that it's intensely detailed and writes about things that people don't write about now. Right. The, the, the guy in the poem has a full-body male orgasm. This is something that men have. This is something you will not read about in even the most like up-to-date and cutting-edge and sex-positive yeah, fiction. Right. Will not talk about things like that. Yeah. And the, the way in which he envisages it's just it's just fantastic stuff. Yeah, it really is. And witty. And witty. And, 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 and yeah. And, yeah. And, and and speaks to speaks to stuff that speaks to. I think these headphones are messing up my ears, so I'm just going to take them out. Uh, that would stop any feedback if there was any feedback. Apologies. Yeah, like speaks speaks about feelings of inadequacy as well. Mm. Like it's quite. Um, in a way, it's quite an anti-masculinity poem, even though it's also very, uh, very much from the point of view of, of, of male entitlement. In a yeah. way, you know, but it's, it's a good. It's, it's really worth checking out. I really would no, recommend absolutely. it. Absolutely, and I have got I have got MP3s of all of those, which I just did the other oh, yes. week. So Brilliant. what I'll do is I'll make sure you get a link for that. One. Yes, please. Because I've been wanting to leak. There's there. It's one of those poems that there's been literally so many times that on Twitter. I'm just like the most appropriate thing to say here is Rochester, but where is it? It's not. <laughs> there i can't link to it in that in that way so i'm really excited to have, have you seen have you seen the movie there is there's no. a rochester movie with johnny depp called the libertine oh, okay which is profoundly disappointing <laughs> uh, except for john malkovich as charles ii who is just unbelievably good okay. and worth watching for and the problem is that they obviously the producers had this uh dilemma because the poems have the word cunt in them and johnny depp is going to have to say the word cunt yeah yeah how are we going to get this? Because you can't say cunt in America. No. And, so clearly, and it's, different. it's a different word it's a different in America, word. the way it works. So clearly what they did was they decided that they were, they were going to use the word in the poems. The visuals would have to be chaster than chaste. So he wanders through St. James's Park, delivering the great ramble in St. James's Park, which is full of it. And as he walks through St. James's Park, it's like a carry-on movie with kind of buxom wenches, with kind of frilly bosoms being chased around. It's so unraunchy. It's really weird. Really weird. Weird. But amazing that they made it in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to see more. But I mean, I'd never heard. I'd literally never heard of Rochester until right. I was uh, in in your the first performance I saw of that show. Why the Bible? What, what, how did you come upon the Bible? Like, the Bible is something to perform. I mean, that's that's less less of a familiar idea than performing Victorian poems. What? Well, you see, again, I don't know. I think that if we as middle-class English people had been sitting here having this conversation 40 years ago, we would have heard the King James Bible performed every oh, Sunday. Yeah, OK. Every Sunday. Yeah, yeah, by the minister. By, right? by, the, yeah, by, by, by someone in the church. Uh, and I think that's something that we've lost because we don't go to church anymore. But I see, I, I think that really interests me. This, this is performance poetry as well. Hmm. It was made to be read. And it, it's the best thing. It's the best stuff in the language. There is nothing like just the sheer joy of the language. Yeah. And and it just seems a good thing to do because I think it's important that we reclaim our Christian heritage from the people who nowadays call themselves Christians. Because I think, you know, in terms of a cultural heritage, I am not Christian. My parents were, or are, their parents were, their parents were, their parents were way back. And I've inherited a language which is full of echoes of the King James Bible. And I've inherited a mental landscape which is full yeah. of Bible stories and a calendar 
which is has Easter in it and has Christmas in it and has all these kind of festivals in it. And I think it's actually important that we say, actually, th this, this is our text too. These are our holidays too. The people who nowadays call themselves Christians have taken their heritage and gone with it in one way by actually believing in it. And I think the rest of us need to pick it up and take it in the other way by saying it's a great map of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's like uh, people are always going on about how so many of our phrases come from Shakespeare, but mm. a lot of them come from the Bible Shakespeare as well. and the Bible. Right. That's it. Shakespeare I mean, and the Bible, a bit of Milton. Yeah. And then a, a, a dash of other people. But Shakespeare and the Bible is absolutely it. Yeah, I mean, and you did uh, you did my... Because I, I like read the Bible, you know, when I was a teenager and I enjoyed bits of it. And I think that that's a kind of acceptable thing to say as well. Like, like mm. there's a lot of different people wrote the Bible and there's a lot of different, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is amazing. Yeah. The book of Ecclesiastes is amazing. It's amazing. Revelation is amazing. And the, and yeah, the, the, the Song of Solomon, right. which is about as raunchy as you get right. in world literature. But I don't feel the need to reread Leviticus. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I we should maybe from a I treat of, that I treat like that. I'd sound poetry. I think if you start reading through things like the King Lists, which are just these lists of ridiculous Hebrew names who yeah. may or may not have existed and begetting and things like that, you get into a really good hypnotic kind of linguistic space. It does. It sounds good. It yeah. sounds good. You start reading it. and Well, I think uh, I'm always thinking about when people say the, the begat thing, my dad, because my dad's uh, 90 and uh, he, he always sort of says that like, what, you know, when he was kids, like that was like their kind of, like glimpse into sexuality like every like you know all that you know that was like almost like porn i guess for for, for, the, for their generation well certainly david and bathsheba king david looks out and sees bathsheba bathing naked right. on the rooftop and right. arranges to have her husband bumped off i mean it's all it's you know, it's bloody good stuff <laughs> yeah. right <laughs> let's not and, fry out the baby with the bathwater These yeah are right good stories you no, know? no i agree and yeah. i think there's some really beautiful i mean i really like as as I say, I like the book of Ecclesiastes, which you did on request for yeah, yeah. uh, Stand Up Tragedy one time. And I think like, the thing about that I always find am amusing is that nobody knows that the, the, the lyrics to the to the birds uh, turn is from that uh, from, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. To everything there's a time and a, yeah, and yeah. a time to every purpose under heaven. Right. People don't also realise that By the Rivers of Babylon by Boney M is one of the Psalms. <laughs> right. Do you know that? No, I did know that, but yeah, I do... Like that fact too. And it's a really vicious one because it starts off by the rivers of Babylon, the bit that Boney M set, uh, and then very soon it comes to the end going, oh Lord, smite the children of those who have oppressed us. It's really bloodthirsty, the end of that psalm. <laughs> There's a lot of smiting. He's not a nice character. Well, no. The Lord, in general, that's what you pick up from reading the Bible, and well, he's a, maybe that's why it's important that we all do. Cause... And then, well, there's a few different lords as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the, the 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 Lord of the Old Testament is different from the Lord of the New, and 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 they're well, both different that's a, in different that, interpretations. That, that's an interesting too. point. If the is the Lord of the Old Testament the Lord of the New, I think Christ says that it is the Lord of the New. I think that's the dangerous bit. It would be nice if they believed that you could just read the Old Testament for shits and giggles and concentrate no, on the no, New no, Testament. No, 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 that's but, true. But actually, I think a prime article of faith is probably... Yes, it's it is. The, it's the same God. It is. I mean, it is. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no getting away from that. But I think that in the, the structure of the teaching, I mean, you, what you can question, uh, you can question the idea of maybe if if Christ was a revolutionary, it's quite useful propaganda to say, this is your God, but actually make it a different God. I mean, I think that's how Hinduism happened mm -hmm. in the, the every, you know, every God was like, yeah, the God you believe in, 
That's true, but it's one of the many incarnations of our God, yeah. uh, and, and and then they that's how you shift the story and sort of trick people uh, into sort of changing their beliefs without knowing it. Fundamentally, though, I think you need to believe to put out to work that everybody is the same and there is only one thing. Right. I really are the Hindu thing. I mean, it's I don't think you can just transplant that kind of thinking because fundamental to Hinduism, isn't it, is the fact that there really is only one thing. Yeah. Everything that looks different is just kind of ripples. Yeah. yeah, and well, I think I think maybe all religions go towards the idea that there is only one, one, one way and one one. Yeah, that that yeah, all monothe. I, I mean, Hinduism is a complicated one because it's technically not monotheistic, but yeah. it, as everything is an incarnation of the of the one thing, it kind of is. Yeah. Uh, the Norse the Norse myths were mu- were much more like uh, lots of different competing ideas. No, no, no unifying. Mm-hmm. No unifying answer. What what made you start with the Bible though? We 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 we, we derailed ourselves away from, from that. Okay, that now thing. actually, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember why I start first started reading the Bible. I this whole reading thing before I ever thought of performing it was part of my academic work when I started training to be an academic. I did a master's in Latin literature. And I was very interested in, because it's all rhetorical, is it? The Latin literature is all supposed to be read out loud and the way that rhetoric works. And I started just as a practical experiment. I started reading things out loud, things like how long would it actually take to read a book of Homer? Uh, and how bored would you get if it wasn't done very well? <laughs> and what does it feel like to actually, because we, you know, we encounter these things in books, but they're not essentially meant to be read meant to be heard and they're meant to be spoken so I'd had these ideas coming around for quite a while and I worked up various things but not with the thought to standing on stage and doing it with the thought to actually doing it as a kind of academic exercise right because you're a classic scholar. I am I, I, I was a classic scholar right I got out of it <laughs> I did I did my master's degree did a bit of teaching and realized with some perspicacity that there probably weren't going to be that many jobs right which is true because classics teaching is pretty much collapsed in British universities which is a very sad thing there's some great people out there doing great work but you know, as an institution it doesn't really exist anymore there's right. probably a career structure and then I was invited by someone I met to come and do a reading in their lovely home in Arundel and uh, been going down to the Arundel Festival now for I think eight years uh, and she suggested would I like to read some part of the Bible because they like the Bible. I said, right, okay, I'll do Book of Job. I did a 70% edit, which is an hour and three quarters. Wow. And I did hour and three quarters of the Book of Job. And then I started doing really stupid things. Uh, the hour and I do like two hour readings of stuff. And uh, well, You've done the complete elements. Of, like You've done the whole of things without any editing. I've done the whole right? of things without any editing. Uh, the biggest one I did in Edinburgh 2011, the Inky Fingers people very kindly let me use a bookshop to read a three and a half hour non-stop uh, reading of Christopher Smart's Jubilati Agno, a poem written in Bedlam in the 1740s. Wow. Well, by a, that, I mean, that's not fair on audiences doing that. I soon realised two hour readings uh, from my point of view are just fantastic. You get come about 10 minutes in and then this kind of red mist come down over you and all you're doing is just saying the words and it becomes this huge meditation and then you get to the end and you think, Jesus, am I almost at the end? <laughs> I've only been going for 15 minutes and you've been doing it for two hours. I especially felt that with the Job. But yeah, then the Job took off and people heard that and I've done that in a number of places. A number of people heard it and got me to do it the best one. 
there's a tiny little Saxon church in West Sussex called Stopham in this tiny corner of the world where there's still a lord of the manor and his family came over with the conqueror in 1066 and he's the landowner and all 80 people who live in this little hamlet are his tenants and there is a 9th century church and the vicar of the church has got a living that's given to him by the lord of the manor i mean this is absolutely in the 21st century there there is a feudal fief in west sussex and they have this 9th century church and they want me to come and do the job in there and that was absolutely insane that church was the best pa system i've ever used in my life you know, when you were standing at the front and you were doing this stuff doing this old testament stuff the acoustic was so perfect you wanted to go up a notch you raised your chin up an inch that's it just raised your chin up an inch and you suddenly got like this huge like kind of it was just amazing and then when you wanted to take it down again you just dropped another inch and it brought wow. it right down and it was as if i was standing up there with monitors that was really, yeah. it was a really incredible experience yeah yeah well I mean, the religious spaces are big PA systems, yeah. really. I mean, that's the amazing thing about the way that they're designed. Yeah. Also, one of the things I like about um, the new cathedral in Coventry, which is a very different era mm. of creation, that is basically a, an organ, that, mm. that, that building, and it's so, it's so beautiful for that. So you write your own stuff as well yeah. as perform uh, yeah, covers of well, the classics. Well, that kind of, that kind of happened independently. That, I didn't start doing that till. Uh, that's 27, 28. Okay. I started performing. Right. I'd never, I'd honestly never thought of standing up performing my own poetry. I'd done. Had you written it? Before? Uh, no, I hadn't really written it. Right. I'd written a couple of uh, poems to people who wouldn't sleep with me, you know, the usual kind of the right. usual thing, like we all do, but really hadn't thought of it. That came about quite separately. And suddenly I was living in Newcastle, which in the 90s, mid to late 90s, there wasn't a huge amount going on. It was still this post-industrial backwater that really... Ages before the city of culture. Yeah, ages before, the, yeah, before right. the city of culture. In fact, we were kind of part of the first stirrings of the city of culture. Okay. And I had a lot of friends who were in bands and did various performing things and they couldn't get a gig because Newcastle had discovered 10 years later than the rest of the country had discovered DJs, which meant that all the pubs that used to have a band on on a Friday night or three bands on on a Friday night suddenly realised it was a lot cheaper just to stick some idiot on in the corner with some records and everyone did DJ nights there were no gig spots for kind of you know semi-professional starting up kind of bands who weren't my friends and they all just used to sit around moaning uh, and one of us rented this big house with this huge five-sided living room that was uh, just built for parties and um, we used to have great parties there and one day I turned around and said right we're going to do a gig in here do a gig in here everyone's got to go and do an act uh, go away come back we're going to do on this Saturday night we're going to do this thing about a week beforehand I realised that I didn't have an act having gone round and basically bullied everyone because uh, there was a bit of resistance to this <laughs> I don't know we're just going to put on a gig in the living room realised a week before didn't have an act sat down wrote a 10 minute beat poetry set and stood up and did the beat poetry set wow and I think it's fair to say that no, we don't remember much. There are tapes of it, but they none of them seem to have worked very well. And there are some very interesting, confusing photos. We don't really remember much about that one. Uh, we then decided to name it Home Cooking. Uh, we did another one in the living room that was bigger and weirder and went on till five o'clock in the morning. We ended up getting a residency in a cafe that was run by this um, really sweet guy who was in bad trouble with... Uh, bailiffs 
and the bottle, who really didn't give a shit anymore, and let us come in and take over his cafe once a month and have these absolutely riotous, big, freeform, nine-hour, anybody who wants to turn up can turn up and play. And wow. because there was not that much going on that was like that, we really did. We had we had entire bands turning up at 11 o'clock at night on their way back from rehearsal and sitting down, and it was chaos to run. It was absolute you know, as the person that had to stay sober and run around with the clipboard trying to right. organise people. I've been there. Yeah, I can safely say it was about as bad and I would never touch a gig like that now. <laughs> <laughs> Life is too short. But, you know, it was it was great. It was absolutely great. We got a lot of support. We got a lot of notice. And, and that's how I started doing poetry. Wow. And, like, why... Why classics? Why did you decide to study that? I mean, how did that come about? I was good at it. It was something that I went to an independent grammar school in okay. Newcastle. Uh, and it was very much part of it. It was one of those schools I don't even know they do it anymore. That Everyone did Latin right. when they were 11. And I just took to it. Something just clicked in my brain when I started learning this language. And then later on doing Greek, which is just an amazing language. Ancient Greek is just a fantastic language. If you're into languages, they are brilliant things to learn. Well, I guess they're keys, aren't they, both of them, to how our language works now? Yeah. Because they're two of the major influences of, of and how we use our everything, written and spoken language. I just, and just in terms of how language works, because they're dead, and you don't have to worry about making yourself understood. You don't have to worry about the fact that living languages change all the time. Uh, and, you know, you can learn some French, but when you actually get out of France, you're going to end up learning a whole lot more and you're never going to, you right. know. With Latin, all of Latin literature fits on one CD. It stopped evolving, It right? stopped evolving. Right. It's a fossil. <laughs> and because it's a fossil, you can see much more precisely how it's working because it's not changing all the time. I think that's what's really fascinating about it. And the books are great. So, but initially it was just because you were good at it. Initially because I was good at it and I loved it. Right. And then once you start reading classical literature so when you get to about 14 15 16 you start reading the dirty stuff and that really seals it for a lot of people you start reading material that you would never be allowed to read in english you would just never be allowed to read in english right you know the, the terms because of tell us because it's because it's extremely <clears throat> explicit and right. raw and and good but because it's uh, culture, you can get away with it. But because it's in, because it's in the veiled in the what's the what's the phrase? The enforcer's phrase veiled in the decent obscurity of a dead language. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You can talk about things yeah. that you would never be able to talk about in an English and do context. You, do you think anywhere. it should be taught to people then, like standardly? Uh, I think that it is good brain training. I think there's a reason that it held on for so long. I think actually learning classical languages and learning dead languages is the mental equivalent of going to the gym. It's pointless, you know, sitting there in a seat, lifting up weights up and down repetitively. Functionally, isn't actually that much use. But what it does is it trains you up and it gets the muscles working. And it means that when you actually come across living languages, you know what to do with them. It's fine. You're just like, okay, I do this, I do this, I do this. And you plug it all in. And it is as, as hard brain training I think, you know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with making kids do hard brain training at, at a tender age. I guess not. No. I guess not. That's my, my I, I don't know, I always think in terms of, like, if they want to, they, 
like it's like if the if if a child if a child does not want to learn it, they're mm. not going to learn it. But if they if they're down with having their brain trained, that's the that's of, when it's beneficial to be training them. Part of part of that ignores what teaching is about. I mean, it's like in a show. If the audience don't want to hear the show you've got, you make them want to hear the show you've got. <laughs> you do. That's what you do. That's part. That's yeah, part, by that's being part a good of your performer, job. Right? By being a good performer, or like we were saying about the introductions. You know, you, you package things. It's important right. to kind of to, to, to manage people so that they do want what you're going to give them. Well, yeah, I mean, and that I is essentially what... what you, well, that's essentially yeah. what your show... Like, to, to, to call it a kind of educational show, if you if you tagged it that on flyers, mm. right, no one would come no. to see it. Because, and it, no, that Not that many people did come to see it. Right. <laughs> but it <laughs> but, well, sure, but I mean, like, the... the, the the, the things that you'd sell it to yeah. people on you'd say actually it's really funny mm-hmm. it's you know, it's really raucous it's it's yeah. it's it's everything you'd get from a a, a good stand-up mm-hmm. comedy set you're going to kind of get uh, from that plus some other emotions and, and but, it was but, and it was a show about masculinity i realized halfway through that's the run true. that i hadn't realized it before as i was doing it i was thinking well you know we had that kipling about men and women and you have Walt whitman standing there all naked and hairy and wanting to shag everybody yeah. and but that's you why have. that's why comedians yeah. choose that topic too. Yeah. It's it's the one that the audience go, oh, we can instantly relate to this because mm-hmm. it's about this thing that we're all negotiating all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, yeah, the next the next one I've, I've purposely put in a theme. So this year's one, I'm probably not going to do a full run at. Well, I'm definitely not doing a full run at Edinburgh. But I hope to go up and do it. But I'm learning the show anyway because you need to do a show a year. Yeah. I think really, it's going to be uh, about romanticism and dark places. Nice. And I'm going to do a lot of romantics, a lot of Coleridge and some Wordsworth and then some really kinky stuff like Swinburne and Tennyson. Oh, that's really kind of, you know, it's going to be Maybe you will be able yeah. to make me like Wordsworth because I can't <laughs> get into that, dude. I've been to his house and stuff. Yeah. I've been like, I mean, I used to live near Grasmere. In fact, me and my girlfriend got engaged in Grasmere. Oh. We got unengaged since, but uh, at the same time. Where was it's that? Still Where did nice you get place. unengaged? Uh, I don't know. That was just a sort of gradual decision. Okay. And we might get married still. We've got yeah. our engagement rings. But it's just weird. Nice. Weird. Yeah. we haven't got, you know, 10 years ago, that's when we got them. Anyway, probably longer. So Grasmere and Wordsworth mm. sort of like cottage and all of that uh, area is really kind of uh, sentimental to me. But I can never really get into Wordsworth. Coleridge I can get into. Yeah. Uh, but Wordsworth leads, leaves me pretty, uh, I don't know. He seems quite pompous, it feels to me. But maybe you, you well, know, he you did can, end up a can handle it. Wicked old Tory, didn't he? Which, having started being fired up by the French Revolution, yeah, well, that's a sadly common tale, though. Yeah, yeah, but I think Wordsworth, Wordsworth, kind of encapsulates him more than more than most. There's right. the, a Browning poem, isn't there? The, 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 the lost. I knew I can't remember. That's yeah, start quoting poetry. Right, I lied. I always. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm terrible for remembering quotes perfectly anyway so right. I'm always frustrating myself you have a, a mind trained to remember I guess uh, yeah yeah train I've now been doing this I'm, it gets easier the more I do it and I've got some systems now for memorising things but I find that I just always if you constantly memorise things yeah you, you, again it's like going to the gym I mean have you had any formal training in performance and, and, um, and, and that sort of stuff no except the school choir that's the one thing that I'm really glad of glad of in later life is the fact that I was taught to breathe at a young age as a choir boy uh, and it wasn't particularly pleasant, the choir master didn't like him particularly much and, you know, it was all a bit strange but what we got out of it was that I instinctively breathed from the diaphragm 
Right, and because you are without, you're a very him, good performer. Him, you know, that's that's it. So that bit of training, uh, and like being in plays and things, and you know, I've never been shy about standing up and making an idiot of myself, which helps. But you know, that's what get you practice. You know, the yeah, number yeah. of times I remember my abortive stand-up gigs uh, when I was at college, <laughs> which, which you no, know, best drawn a veil over but you know you've got to stand up and fall on your ass a few times haven't you yeah i think yeah. i think so i think it's a i think it's a really beneficial experience yeah. for performers i mean i i i recommend it uh yeah. i always think performers who haven't fallen on their ass like uh the longer you leave it the worse it's going to be when yeah. it comes so you yeah. might as well Absolutely. get out of and, and you know and it helps once you see it enough and you go right it is shit and you learn and, and, you it, learn, and it passes right? yeah. and you do leave the bar and eventually <laughs> go home and cry and get up the next day and it really doesn't destroy you. Yeah. You know, it's just shit. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's really hard to remember, I think, when you approach, when you're doing performance, that it really doesn't matter at all. Uh, like, whether you do it, like, you know, if, if it goes wrong, so what? You've lost absolutely nothing. Yeah. The next day, you will still be alive. You'll still have food. Yeah. You'll still be, you know, you'll have your life. Um, but it feels like if it doesn't go right... <laughs> Yeah. then that's the end of the world you know I, I find often anyway and so it should because after all for that for that moment when you're actually performing you've just got to be one absolute undivided it's got to be all of you yeah doing it well that's what I like about it yeah though. it's got to be all of you okay in the back of your mind you're thinking okay right we're running about two minutes faster which means I'm gonna have to cut this by two and a half minutes you've got right. all that going on but actually when you stand up there and do that you've just got to switch that off yeah it's just all you there's no well even that the thing is I find that the things that you're worried about they become a, a different kind of entity once the show starts mm. because you can't panic and I have a crisis so they just tick tick away somewhere at the back well, of your head been, not have you been professional planning over anyway. right right <laughs> I mean, because what I enjoy about performance and, and running shows is that when they start, I'm forced into the moment, if you like, uh, for that for that show. Yeah. And I, I find that a hard thing to experience in everyday life. So I, you know, run, run podcasts and shows <laughs> to, to force myself to actually, you know, have real life in the moment experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing when we were in Edinburgh that I noticed to my great. I don't know. I'm I'm really pleased to have noticed this, but it, it's also slightly frustrating. But we'll get into that. You have a snufkin tattoo. I have a snufkin tattoo. You do on my right arm. And I've always wanted a tattoo all my life. Been trying to search for the perfect thing to get a tattoo uh, of. And when I saw your snufkin tattoo, I realised that that is the absolutely perfect tattoo that I should get. But now I'm in a dilemma because I, if I get a snufkin tattoo. It looks like I'm like copying you rather no, than it having some like personal relationship this, to this, me. This may, I don't know if we covered the, the other bit of the Snufkin tattoo story that may or may not make it easier for you to have a Snufkin tattoo on your arm. Right. Is that I had this Snufkin tattoo when I was, what, 25 years old. Snufkin's been my hero since I was eight. Right. No, absolutely. Me too. I mean, you, you're a Moomin head, so you yeah. understand. Uh, people who aren't Moomin heads, uh, every character in the Moomin is an archetype of human existence, and we all have to pick a move in I think in order to realise our true nature yeah. uh, I had the snuffing in on my arm years later uh, they started publishing and translating Tuvi Anson's other books sort of pressed did I think uh, Philip Pullman and Ali Smith right. pressured Penguin books the into summer book, the summer and, book the and the adult books and the winter book in the winter book there's a section of fan letters that were written to her uh, back in the 60s 
when the Moomin books were coming out. And in one of them is the sentence, can you draw me a snuffkin I can have tattooed on my arm as a sign of freedom. Wow. I do not read Swedish. <laughs> there is no way I could have known that. So I, I'm eventually, I'm ripping off somebody else's idea from the 60s. Right, I guess we're always ripping yeah. off people's ideas. Um, and I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to get one. I'd be interested to know how many other movement tattoos there are out there. There'll be quite a lot. I mean, I, there, so must, there must be a few. We should of set us. up like yeah. yeah. We've basically set up the movement. I guess it's a children's book. Uh, Tove Jansson wrote it. Uh, she was an amazing. Her biography is as interesting as her books, um, and they they have a relationship. But certainly, exp- I, I I'm really glad to know how they relate to her life story mm. but I'm glad I didn't know it when I started reading the Moomins so I'm quite but reluctant almost Moom- to tell Moomins, people Moomins are going to be big I believe there's a big budget animated version oh, of right. Comet in Moominland which I think is due out later this that year that worries me which worries me a bit but the books are so good yeah and they can't be damaged no. and even if it's a rubbish film if people read the books as a result of that that would be that, that would be perfect the one bit the one bit I'll be interested to see if it survives when the books get re-edited and reprinted. Uh, is the bit I don't know. You know, in exploits of Moomin Papa, I know, that Moomin book. Star here. I know that book there, very well. There is a scene in which Moomin Troll is very upset because someone has told him that smoking is bad for you, and he's very upset. And he goes up to Moomin Mama, who's the big matriarch figure of the books, and goes, "Is this true? Is this true?" And Moomin Mama looks down and says, "No, nothing that's nice can be bad for you." <laughs> I would be very, very. It says something it very does. great. I would, I would be very <laughs> interested to see if, if that if that particular like couple of lines of dialogue yeah, is allowed. They'll probably nowadays. cut that. They're they probably won't even have him smoking a pipe. Yeah, I mean, they probably won't. I don't. I don't know because that would involve a lot of editing out of pictures and things like that. But, yeah. but the bit where Moomin Mama tells Moomin Droll, nothing that's nice can be bad for you, which is an extremely interesting right moral proposition, but. Yeah, I mean, and the, 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 and Snufkin is the the character of Snufkin. The yeah, as you said, uh, it's freedom. Maybe that's the easiest way to sort of view him. But he he has a sort of melancholy as well uh, to to him, and he moves around. He avoids he avoids the winter. He moves around, and he doesn't have a home. Just a pipe and a knapsack. A knapsack. And a knapsack in his mouth organ. Yeah. But he does, I mean, the melancholy comes because all the movements hibernate in winter. So at the end of the summer, when winter starts, right. he leaves and goes off, and all his friends go to sleep, and they're yeah. just all asleep, and there's something very melancholy about that. Right. And he's got to spend the entire winter having adventures with the Hattie Fatners and all that cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and you know, and he's 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 more than just freedom. He hates policemen, and he, he, yeah, he and he, the park keeper, right? And the car, park yeah, keeper. He's he's very much. I mean, I you know, I I I'm basically have to have to say I'm an anarchist, and he sort of like represents those ideals to me because he's like he doesn't like authority, he doesn't believe in property, what, he doesn't believe in home. What I know. really love though, what I really love in the Moomins is the lack of any kind of moral certainty because right. Snufkin's enemies are the Hemulans. Right. The whole race of Hemulans, right. and they love order. They're basically Germans, aren't they? I think is that well, yeah. something very Germanic but about them. They're, they're, they're also affectionately treated. Yeah. They're, they're often pompous and bumbling they're as well. Pompous and, and bumbling and everything. But there are certain moments where you get to see into the life of the, the, the Hemulan, the collector, 
who collects stamps. Right. And he spends his entire time collecting stamps. And yeah. then he, he collects, he's got all the stamps in the world and it's finished and he doesn't have anything to collect anymore. And he has this huge personality. I mean, these are very complex books. Yeah, they're really complicated. Really complicated and really vivid. And he has this huge meltdown about what am I going to do? I've done it now. I've succeeded. That's right. I mean, that's the, well, that's the thing. All of the characters are, are, are very sensitively treated. Yeah. And sometimes they're not very nice. No, that's sometimes true. Sometimes they're blatantly not very nice and you don't like them, but you just learn that, you know what? People are just like that. <laughs> and, right. And that doesn't mean they're nasty acceptance. or wicked or anything. There's right. a sense of acceptance going, no. I mean, little Mai is just... Well, annoying I, little cow. Do you think that? Because yeah, I, I think she. I, 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 I identify with little Mike. <laughs> I identify with little Mike because she's like a screaming, roaring id of like, what I want. You know, she wants what she wants and she's going to have it and she's not. But she doesn't suffer fools and, she's, and she tells the truth, right? So she's kind of like. I think she's kind of a proto-feminist kind of uh, symbol as well for, for a lot of girls, I she's, think. Of, she's a proto-post-feminist. Yes, okay, post-feminist. <laughs> I think that definitely, like, it it's probably makes sense if you're a girl to identify more with Little Mai than to, to identify with the Snort Maiden, I think. I mean, I like the Snort Maiden. Okay, the Snort Maiden is really girly and is just obsessed with a fringe. She likes, she she likes, likes pearls. And yeah. is Moomin Trolls, kind of high-maintenance girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, high maintenance isn't exactly fair. Like... <laughs> I think she, you know, he, yeah. The, 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 I, I have some. I, I like this. I like the Snort Maiden too. But I think that that Little Mai just takes what she. She doesn't like. There's no one. No one fucks with Little Mai. Uh, you know, she's a sheer force of will, and in that respect, yeah. I, I enjoy her presence yeah. in the in the stories. And she's never. You're right. She's never going to have. She's never going to change. No. Like the, there isn't very much characters changing. There's in in the Moomins. There's a sort of sense that we don't really change. I feel except with the seasons. Yes, the, the seasons change them. us, but the we seasons don't change, change us. Right. And it's always very much about the the, the, the the one in the summer, and there's the one in November, and there's the one in the winter, and. And in the winter, spring, yeah. if you want to talk, like, if, if Snufkin is melancholy in the winter because all of his friends have gone to sleep and he leaves, when Moomin Troll wakes up and all of his family is still asleep and, and everything has changed, the whole of his world looks completely different. There's a completely different culture, different yeah. people, different characters, and he's completely alienated from it. I mean, that always really resonates with me. Yeah. And especially, like, this, he gets all of the... The objects in his house and puts them all together into a kind of den and curls up in the middle of yeah. them to try and feel safe and I always feel like that safety he finally feels curled up in that I kind of like really desire that experience even though I don't want the alienation no. beforehand you know oh. yeah I mean now you know this is why I'm clearly revealing myself to be a, this is why I should get a, snuff, a snuffkin tattoo because <laughs> this is a big thing for me. I mean, did you read them when you were a child? Yeah. Moomins? Yeah. yeah, I found the books. I think I've still got the copy of Comet and Moomin Troll that I found at our primary school jumble sale. Did, was that the first one you read? That was the first one that I read. That was the first one I read. Okay. The, the, post, the kind of uh, the apocalyptic threat uh, really yeah. appealed to me. I think, I think that's the one that's going to be a movie. That, I, I mean, the, it makes sense, the doesn't it? Story. Because it fits with the narratives that we have at the moment about the end of the world. Yeah. But at the same time, it's so different from that because it's not um, a it's not an action movie at well, all. It kind of is. Well, yeah, Moomin, but... Troll, Moomin Troll has to have a battle with a deadly poisonous Angostura bush. Oh, there's some there's some yeah, action there are, sequences. There are there are action sequences. But 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 it, what it is is it's not 
the the that the per the big peril of the comet is much more it's it's much more of a an acceptance again mm -hmm. with yeah. with the comet and 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 uh, there's a sense of like there's no like oh hey we can save the day there's no like way that they have to say stop the comet it's more like what's that thing in the sky we better find out what that thing in the sky is mm -hmm. oh right that is what we thought it was uh, better go home. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, that, I mean, that, you know, that's. But it is. It's the good. simplest one. I think it's the first one she wrote. So it's, it's got more of a kind of linear narrative than. Yeah. Certainly the last one, Moomin Valley in November, a book which is just like Ibsen, in which yeah. there are all of these minor characters, and it's autumn, and they're already unhappy, and they've they've got mental health, uh, mental health issues quite clearly. There's yeah. a depressed Hemulin. There's a there's an OCD Philly Jonk. Yeah. There's a autistic kid. And they're all in their various homes feeling miserable because it's going to be winter. And they all remember being in the Moomin house in summer and being really happy there. Yeah, they go to the place And they all go they to the Moomin loved. house. And they go to the place that they had a great time in one summer. And then the Moomin family aren't there. Right. So they sit and sort of bicker and fall out with each other. And Snufkin's wandering around, I think, for some reason. Yeah. And then at the end they have a party, which isn't a very good party. And then after that they all go home. Um, yeah, they see the ship. They see the yeah, right at the, 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 the But it's ambiguous. The, the, the kid, the little autistic yeah. kid, is there at the end. Toft. Toft. Uh, well, Toft is based on her, like yeah. literally yeah. based on her. But but yeah, yeah hugely complex book. There's I mean, the silhouette yeah. in the distance, but you don't know if they're passing, if they're going to come, and if yeah. they're even the moments. Yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah it's 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 a deeply rich environment. I think um, the moments live in for to, to sort of morally and philosophically and all of those kind of things like it offers a very different point of view to what you're you most like it's very non-binary good mm -hmm. and bad and it it suits very well with japanese anime right uh, it has That's exactly true. the same kind of moral approach that people who start out as adversaries or annoying or yes often turn out to be friends later on down the line yes. and, a, and a refusal to have because western literature is all about there are goodies and there are baddies yeah and the point of the plot is to find out which of the goodies are really baddies and which of the baddies are really goodies. Yeah. And once you figured that out, well, right. Drop in, the in, the, in the Finn family, Finn family movie yeah. intro, the the hobgoblin turns yeah. out to have his turn, own turn, life yeah. and yeah. his it own turns reasons. Out to be a character. He's a big scary he's monster. Own, and then, yeah. And even the croak. Right. I mean, the croak is the most fascinating of the characters. Well, right. In, she is. She is in the first one, in Finn family movie intro. She's just a monster and she's scary. She's yeah. really scary. And then you get a bit further on the fact that she's just lonely because she just wants to be warm. Yeah, but every in, time the, she it's can, in the, the midwinter one. Midwin midwinter. And she kind of represents death as well. Yeah. So but it's then, great. In Moomin Papa at Sea, one of the very end ones, when Moomin Papa is having a midlife crisis right. and insists on insists taking the family on to, a, him, yeah. to a barren rock, Moomin Troll hits puberty. It's the most extraordinary bit. Uh, and he sneaks out at night to meet the Grogue on the beach. That's right. In these kind of bizarre wet dreams. So. So, That's right. so the Groke, having started out as the monster, start, ends up being the kind of adolescent boy's sexuality. That's been, I mean, it really, and that's so even more interesting done. because the Groke is kind of also death. Like this yeah. idea, like because yeah. there's a the, the that's the thing. If she gets you, you'll you'll kind of you're, die. Well, she's she, she's cold. Right. She just wants to be warm, and she sucks the 
Yeah. Although there's that great, I mean, there's the great thing when the squirrel is kind of, the squirrel dies, um, and then it sort of has a little footnote on the page saying, turn to page, uh, whatever it is, 187, yeah. and, you, and, and if you're feeling sad, right. turn to that, and you can, and in that, on that page, you see the squirrel bouncing around alive because it, yeah. it comes kind of back, back to life. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. She, she is a very, like, she's a good caretaker for children. This is like, experience as well I think if we were talking earlier on about you really shouldn't read that Victorian uh, story to kids <laughs> yeah. that like Tove Janssen's going to take them to the same kinds of areas mm-hmm. of their brains but not but, but safely and keep them safe yeah. and make sure that it's always you know a safe space for them to think about these things that's why I like them because yeah. I see a lot of parallels between the kind of chaos in their lives in the in the kind of chaos of my family life yeah. uh, but they it, there it's resolved and you can look at these things because it, it, it's danger. the model of a non-nuclear family right. there is right. mama and papa and mum and troll yeah but there's also just any mates that happened to right. stroll past yeah and that was my just, that yeah. was my family yeah. we and were the family that had uh Friends who couldn't hang out at their own homes would end up at yeah. our house, and that's um, why, and that's also why it's good as a model of a non-nuclear family yeah, to, right. to get an image of okay, it can work like this. <laughs> yes. you, can, you can have people coming and staying for a bit, and then going somewhere else yeah. and coming back, and I think that's what ex- what excites you as a kid. Well, the, this this is the kind of this is, this give give you an insight in why into why the movements like, relate to my family life. Um, when I was uh, between between the ages of three and eight, I lived in a small village in North Wales mm-hmm. in a cottage where uh, one half was my dad's half of the house and the other half was my mum and then my stepdad's half of the house. And we would go to my dad's half of the house uh, for weekends, mm-hmm. like literally another half of the house for weekends. And like have we had our own beds in that half of the house as well. I mean, that, and that, that is a very kind of like moomin approach yeah. to things like, yeah, you yeah. know, things have seasons, things have times and all these yeah. sort of ideas. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, that's probably that's probably the root of it. I feel like I don't know. Do you do you relate to the Moomins in any other way apart from they're just a story? Uh, what I find fascinating about them is uh, is the way in which the, the aesthetic, it's the Japanese link and is, is the aesthetic. I remember reading with shock uh, Alan Watts' book on Zen, the way of Zen, which is uh, from the sixties. Uh, and is a really good, saying non-new-agey kind of exposition. And he has a chapter at the end on Zen aesthetics and talks about these qualities of melancholy and the different, there's wabi and sabi and huru, there's a whole palette of shades of melancholy, depending on whether it's a temporary melancholy or whether it's a melancholy tinge with a deep excitement because something wonderful is about to happen or a bleak desolate melancholy and these are the moods of zen poetry and of zen art and recognizing that from the moomins that's why i mean moomins go down great in japan there's already i think there have been two major anime series there was one in the 70s and one in the 90s yeah there was yeah as well as, of course, as the there was Polish the German fu- one as well no, the, in a different like, at the, the Polish, same time the, the yeah. Polish fuzzy felt one right yeah the the, Pol- yeah, yeah right that's right it's Polish I think the the Japanese ones had a, were dubbed in a, with American yeah. English the Japanese then, ones suffered because that's what anime used, that's what they used to do to anime they just get very, yeah. who, whoever needed a job in, and needed a hundred bucks in LA that afternoon yeah. <laughs> okay just read out the cartoons yeah and they think they suffered from that the, the versions you can get now I think the DVD boxes out of the later one, not the early one, which I'd love to see, where they've sort they've sorted that a little bit. Yeah, I've yeah. seen some of the fuzzy felt yeah. uh, animations, but uh, yeah, 
I'm a, and I've, I've read the comics as well because she, she she made comics as she well. She made comics, yeah. But, and some of them are really good, but I'm still much my my, well, my think, first love and all will always be the the actual books. What I think is interesting is you can follow between the various versions because the, the 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 comic strips, which I think she did first. Yeah. Uh, which is like the first draft of the stories, and then there are the books as they stand, and then there are her adult books. And the adult books very often have episodes and moments from the Moomin books, but put in an adult context. They're very much very very yes. similar. And being able to follow, if you're a real Moomin geek, the same sequence or the same character in her first version in the comic books, then in the version that we know from the kids' books, and then in the real real life one. Because there were clearly, she keeps meditating on key scenes and key moments. It's the real life element that really impresses me because... um, it's not just the positive elements of my non-nuclear family yeah. that, 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 that the Moomins reminds me of, I guess. It's also my neg- the negative elements. And, and uh, that was clearly Tove Janssen's experience. Mm. She lived in this kind of bohemian family, which was very uh, chaotic and terrible things happened. Mm. And people went away to war and all sorts of terrible things happened. And she, but she manages to take that experience and kind of make it in, like weave it into this like thing with this distance, this mm-hmm. ability to sort of like reinterpret that in a positive way, or to, or to express it mythically, right? Ma- to make she, it into a myth, to make right. it into a myth, and right. a really profound, deep, satisfying myth that yeah. just feels right is just incredible. Yeah, in the yeah. in the true sense of the word myth, like, right? The nearest I came to spending money that I didn't have uh, on a book uh, was in one of the I shouldn't go into them, the really posh secondhand book dealers on Cecil Court, just by Leicester Square Tube, where right. all the really expensive ones are. And there's a children's bookseller in there. And in the window, he had a copy of the 1950s Danish edition of The Hobbit with pictures by Tuve Janssen, which I'd heard about. Uh, and I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd heard about it existing and I was half doubting that it ever existed because you never came across a copy. And there it was. So I drew myself up to the full height oh and went God. in as a person that might have a lot of money to spend. And I had a look at it and it was in shit condition that... Normally you wouldn't be able to sell it. Uh, the binding was hanging off. The pages were kind of a bit crumpled. It was in really bad. It was a bit dirty, really bad condition. And he wanted three hundred and fifty quid for it. I have to tell you that the pictures were incredible. <laughs> She's really completely got them. If you think that Peter Jackson's Hobbit is pompous and over the top and really a bit much, Tuva's Hobbit is like this little semi-moomini character with like. No shield that's too big for him and a chainmail thing that's too big for him. So kind of looking a little bit confused. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you know, someone re-release that, please. But, yeah, that would be an impossible. Yeah, uh, yeah I would have felt like that because uh, yeah, Tolkien is also a big part of my my childhood yeah. experience. I guess I read the Lord. Of, I've forgotten the exact number, but it was in its teens. Yeah. Uh, the amount of time I times I've read it, I think. I'm going to say 15 and a half, but we can, it might be a different number, but that's how many times I read The Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. growing up. Um, although now, I, I have, there's a lot of problems, like, I have a lot of problems with The Lord of the Rings now, I think. But I think I have a lot of problems with it full stop, but I was the same. Yeah. I do, once, once you discover reading it, it's one of these things that you read yeah. over and over, it's clearly a remarkable book. Yeah. No, it's just a pity, it's a bit racist. It is, it is racist. I mean, I, I very much see it as, um, the British version of um, Oswald Spengler's book, The Decline of the West, which was from the 30s, which is a big proto-Nazi, huge compendium of all world civilization and history. 
in which certain races, like the Greeks or the Egyptians, have a moment when they spring to prominence and become top race, and then as soon as they become top race, they start getting decadent and letting in foreigners and losing their racial purity and degenerating, and it goes down, and then they're just sitting there waiting for the next virile young race with pure blood that's going to come in and smash them out of the way. And this is a hugely uh, influential book, Spengler's Decline of the West. Uh, it really does inform that kind of uh, that kind of thinking that, that developed into Nazism, and Tolkien's got that. That's the setup of Tolkien. Yeah, that's precisely the setup of Tolkien. Everyone's very quick to jump on the fact that Tolkien was explicitly anti-Nazi. Like he explicitly wrote uh, letters, you know, condemning like Hitler. Like he was approached by Hitler, wasn't he? That's right. He turned it, was. it down. And, 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 and I think Hitler had Hitler knew what he was doing. Right. The, the reason the, he was approached by Hitler was because it's right there, yeah. Because it's absolutely right there. And the real villain and the real crime in the movies was taking off the scouring of the Shire at the end of the third movie. Right. Because that's the moment when it becomes plain that the real enemy is modernism. Right. He's against the Industrial Revolution. Tolkien absolutely yearns for a pre-industrial society. Right. And essentially, that's what the Nazis wanted. Right. That's exactly what it was. Ein Fog, you know, the blood and soil. Yeah. You know, that's what Tolkien wanted. And the, the horror of miscegenation, the real horror, what Saruman is. Saruman is the big baddie because yeah. he because he has he creates half breeds. Yeah. Creating right, right, half breeds right. and inventing gunpowder and inventing factories is like absolutely the most evil thing you could possibly do. I think it's clearly in there. Yeah. It well, really is. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the, the Easterlings and all of that yeah. and the the elephant. I mean, all of it. And the, yeah, the the orcs generally the way that they're described is incredibly yeah. uh, racist. I mean, well, and come. that's a thing that you, I guess, are having to grapple with all of the time as a classicist and somebody mm -hmm. that's uh, looking at. Um, texts from the past like you've got to make a call on what to do about the racism the sexism the homophobia all of well, those things i guess luckily when you're dealing with classical literature there are racial elements of course there are and you have to be aware of like ethnicity is a is a subject but the romans one thing you can say for them is that they simply we don't even know what their words were they don't describe the colors of people's skin okay. they don't even think like that interesting they will say african so we know that Septimius Severus was uh, an emperor who was born in Africa. We don't know and we have no way of knowing what colour his skin was. Absolutely no one. I mean, if you can count up the, you can count up the, the references to skin colour, there's not a category that they recognised. Interesting. I mean, they were horrendous about being a citizen or not a citizen or being a free man or a slave, yeah. for example. <laughs> but in terms of that kind of, you know, that is yeah, one they had area slavery, of discrimination. But they, they had slavery, but they just yes. didn't dis have distinctions they, between they people who they, they were going to enslave. Who they gonna, or who they were going to let. <laughs> was there a black emperor? Right. He was African. Have we any way of knowing? Yep. Would anyone have mentioned him? They wouldn't have done. That's interesting. Uh, the homophobia bit is also interesting because they certainly didn't right. have gays. They certainly didn't have gays. Uh, classical sexuality is a fascinating subject. Um, well, they never had monosexual. They never. Uh, they gender of object choice is not a category that they're particularly bothered about. They're bothered about uh, whether you penetrate or are penetrated. Right, sponge or a stone. Yeah, sponge or a stone. <laughs> exactly. Quotes, uh, That's what the they're bothered about. If you are an active adult male sexual uh, agent, which means basically being a free man uh you are there's they don't really distinguish about who you want to fuck or how you want to fuck them 
the main right. thing is you just don't get fucked yourself. So slaves, women, uh, boys, there, there is a whole range of available available sexual objects, but the thing you've got to make sure is that you're not, not penetrated. You. Right. So they were like, the, those were the scandals. Oh, yeah, those were the scandals. Those that's when, scandals. That's when, and there are words there. So there are words like kinidus or pathicus. Uh, in Greek, there are a lot more because Greek has a lot more rude, rude words um, that refer that we kind of translate as poof because that's the kind of feeling behind it. But right. it's not to do with the gender of those. Nothing to do with the gender of who they're having sex with. Well, arguably, there's a lot of homophobes out yeah. there that, that have this kind of attitude now. They may penetrate people, but yeah. they would not. Uh, they would not ever be penetrated, and yeah. that is, uh, yeah, yeah. There are a lot, but I mean, and that's I mean, that's the other thing that the attitude. But we, you can't. There's no. I mean, and people will disagree. Uh, there's, yes. There were huge arguments in the '90s when I used to be part of that classical academia about does it make sense to talk about gay people in the ancient world? At what point can you start talking about gay people? Well, but sexism yeah. though that's got to be there. Yeah, the sexism is definitely there, uh, and there are some very awkward points. Uh, the, there's some horrendous poems of Ovid. Uh, in which he talks about uh, beating his girlfriend, which are very, very difficult. And they yeah. just are very difficult. Yeah. Um, no, sure. And with the Victorian stuff, you've definitely got to like make make calls on like how much are you going to show of how racist you know Kipling is or yeah. how much are you going to show of this or that? I mean, do you think you should contextualise it but say it? Or do you, where, I, where, where do you I fall think, on that? I think it's part of how you introduce it. I honestly think it's just part of how you introduce it. I think, you know, these things aren't fixed. That if you've got an, if you if you're good and you've got an audience wanting to listen to you, which is your first job, and then you just point them in the right direction. That that Kipling one I was quite scared about doing it back in Edinburgh, the female of the species, because right. it is full of the most repulsive neo Darwinistic yeah. men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of shit. Um, it's e- even worse than the space song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even there. worse. Uh, <laughs> it is. It really is. But it is really good fun to do, and everyone always really enjoys it. Well, it's, um, it has a real effect, though, because it's, it is like unmasked misogyny yeah. um, from a kind of classical. Like, we, we may not have read Kipling, mm. but we uh, assume he's uh, on that higher, higher sphere of, of classical writers and then there we go he won the nobel prize he's the first english writer sure. to win the nobel prize i mean he, i'm not saying he's not a good no. writer but, but people don't expect him to be as as rapidly as in your face and misogynist so, they should do because he is of the canon and the canon yeah. is is a history of, of those kind of areas in lots of ways but also he's he, he is and he isn't actually one of the interesting things about kipling on women is that by the end he's saying things that you would read in the most fashionable lesbian theory if right. you read, you know, his, his big thing, the, the big thing, that, the, 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 the bit that gets the intake of breath is when he talks about abstract justice, which no woman understands. You know, women biologically cannot understand abstract concepts, which is why they should never be allowed to be in control. And actually, a lot of feminist theorists say that. Irigare says that. Chris Davis says that. They say that things like abstract justice are male constructs and that women are incapable of understanding them. That actually is a sentence that you could lift out of the most fashionable, cutting-edge, postmodern lesbian, lesbian feminist theory. Possibly so, so, but they 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 draw different conclusions. They draw different conclusions from it, but actually, the statement itself, which sounds in Kipling's context like it's being, I mean, I think that's why Kipling's interesting to do because he's complicated, right? Because he's so complicated and he's so intelligent about his 
frankly ludicrous and upsetting views yeah. uh, on sex and on race that actually you can see his mind working you can actually go and see and that is, i think is fascinating i mean because you are you're you're a, a classically educated middle class mm. white guy yeah and you're 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 and that's 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 who your palette is that you're painting with you're contextualizing it you know really really well and i really enjoyed the show mm. but what do you think about the fact that the fact that you are that like you know that you're not well, able I, to... I do subtitle the show dead white male corner <laughs> <laughs> or dead white male poetry corner right yeah and and again but i also perform my own stuff yeah. and perform along, alongside all sorts of people and you know and really test it me standing up saying my stuff in front of an audience yeah which i think helps i think if i would just became a person that stood up and did well, yeah. cheesy old cheesy, you're not cheesy old recitation you're presenting I'm not defending it. the canon I think I think there is a place for a canon I think simply because it shows us what's possible with standing up and doing poetry that standing up and saying right I can stand up and hold you for 20 minutes telling a story about Romans is a real kind of you know what we're we doing in contemporary poetry you know look at all these things that we can do yeah. And, you know, we can do stuff that's outrageous. We can do stuff that's silly. We can do stuff that's, you know, that tells a story. And I think trying to inject some of that back. I mean, I understand. I understand people in the spoken word community who talk about not wanting it to be like it was at school and not having a list of books that they have to read and not being made to learn things. I mean, I, I get all that. But I think there's a bit of throwing a baby out with the bathwater. Because I think how else do you learn what's possible? Yeah. And how how else do you do, you do that? And also, well, so it's, it's really it's, good material. And, and it's, yeah, it is it's good material. Really good material. But it's also a history. I mean, it's also from a point of view of like uh, knowing what was the what are the major forces that have created us now. Mm. Like, if you go through the, the literature, is just as important. Studying literature of the of the canon mm -hmm. is studying the history of, of rich white men, which is mm -hmm. handy, right? If we want yeah. to understand where we're at now, yeah, and uh, how to sort of how to change some of those those attitudes or whatever yeah yeah i mean i, I mean yeah i'm i'm, I'm all for it but I'm not, i don't know if i'm for actually i don't know if i'm for i think the, i'd like like i was saying to you before we actually started recording mm. i'd like to see a, a new a new ca canon that I, I want the canon to look at those things but i, I think if we're teaching children children's stuff mm. we should also be rooting around for the 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 uns the yeah. the other voices if you like yeah. literally I mean, I the other voices i think that's interesting what you say that here because what i'm quite keen to stress is that i'm not about teaching children no and no I find this, and no, I find this a lot and i actually think you need to be quite careful about this because there are a lot a lot of poets make a living teaching children Right. I mean, and that's almost part of the, the career structure is yes, this is how true. you support yourself through the early stage of your career right. is you go and do schools work and do workshops and things like that. And which, you know, I think is there's fantastic people out there in schools. I just need to be clear that that's not what I'm doing. Right. That this is entertainment. Right. This is bums on seats, good old fashioned rip roaring entertainment. Yeah, OK. Yeah, that, no, that, that is that, very that's true. That's the deal, you know, and, you know, and it's all right to be a bit naughty. <laughs> that, that's part of what makes it entertaining. Have you had many heckles? I haven't. I haven't had many heckles. Do you want heckles? Yes, I love heckles. That that was my <laughs> lesson from Edinburgh, twenty thirteen. Having chosen a time at ten o'clock at night in the back of a bar, which was regularly full of drunk people, 
who didn't really want to come and hear the show, but it was the only place that were seats, was in my room. And having stage invasions and having oh it was the, it was beautiful <laughs> beautiful I love having heckles yeah I mean that's <laughs> the thing like the, going back to what you were saying about like education and poetry being seen in that context like it, it's also it's, the, it's this the the dryness that everyone associates with poetry is the absolute antithesis of what you're going for in in these and, sort of nights that you're and, doing. and, and yeah. this attitude that poetry is good for you. Poetry reading the sort of things you ought to go to because they're good for you. Yeah, like like yeah. you had like you ought to take your cod liver oil in the morning or whatever yeah. it is. And I remember very early on, I remember having someone come up to me uh, reading and say, "Oh, well, you know, I'm an art administrator and uh, I go to lots of poetry readings, but I never really enjoy them. But I enjoyed that, and I always felt like slapping them, going, "Look, if you don't enjoy them, please don't come." <laughs> what do you mean you've been to loads of poetry readings and you right, didn't enjoy why are them? You going why did that experience? <clears throat> yeah, maybe you might go to two or three, yeah. but you wouldn't go to loads. You know, what on earth are you doing? Go and do something you enjoy. But it's this kind of, you know, you can see it, especially at more formal, academic y, kind of worthy kind of poetry readings. Right. And you look around the room and it's full of people who are sort of just. <laughs> Just switching off and yeah. going. This is good. This is good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This and is classical good. music as well. And classical, yeah, classical music as well. Why, why aren't people going? We need more heckling. Yeah. <laughs> there needs to get a lot rowdier. There needs to be a lot more heckling. Yeah, Shakespeare as well. Actually, yeah. there's a lot of people going to Shakespeare plays and they're not enjoying them. No, they're, they're not enjoying them. And you think, well, what are you doing here? Why and it's a real shame, actually, because there's a lot of people not going to Shakespeare yeah. plays who would really enjoy them. And then there's people going to them not enjoying them. And I think it's, 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 diff- it's difficult here because I think. Because you, we, when you start talking about the marketplace, let me make it absolutely clear, I think that market forces are a shite way to allocate housing, uh, run a nation, run a health service. I think they're really, it's absolutely catastrophic and sinister. However, I think in the realm of the arts, yeah. I think market forces are exactly what it should be about. Yeah. I think there should be a level playing field. I, you know, I think it should be supported like an industry, but really it's about bums on seat. This is what we do. Your first job as a performer is to get people interested enough to come and see you. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that it would be handy if people like broadened their ideas of like what entertainment is, though, or mm. what it's for. Because I, I do think that entertainment is something I go for and, I, mm. and something I, I really admire in work. But I wouldn't want the stuff that's on the fringes to stop happening because the fringes mm. make the stuff in the middle so much better that, cool. that if there isn't an... An environment where the fringe stuff can happen that's the that's the well, real issue to sound oddly like a marketeer that's exactly what market forces do market forces create a fringe because there are always going to be shows on the fringes who are trying to make it or not being successful or just having yeah. a small audience and are kind of rootling around and then there are always going to i mean that's i actually think i'm a i'm an art thatcherite <laughs> <laughs> in no other sense i mean absolutely i mean literally in no other sense right 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 but, but i think into because the arts have this peculiar status, haven't they? That they're, they're the things that matter because they don't matter. Right. They're, they're that surplus. It matters that there is stuff going on and that people are expressing themselves and things like that. But actually, when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter which. Right. You know, it's not a it's not a moral question like people having decent houses or right. people being able to travel around the country on like decent public transport. It really is. The arts is, is a playground. But the, I think it's the level, the lack of the level playing field that yeah. you mentioned that really causes the problem as well because so much money goes into stuff that doesn't get bums on seats, but they just manage to get the funding. Like how many Hollywood movies flop? I, you know, I, think, it's, I think it's interesting that if you look at 
comparing the subsidised arts, like the high arts, the, the, the subsidised theatres and galleries and all that kind of thing, and other non-subsidised art forms in the last 50 years, there's so much more inclusivity and diversity and playing good work going on with more interesting people in pop music, in movies, in video games, in graffiti. Yeah. I mean, all the things that comics, the state... Yeah. And comics, yeah, comic books we were talking about before is a case in point. The interesting work, the inclusive work, where people really actually get stuff done, is always in the non-subsidised commercial sector. Which isn't to say there haven't been great plays at the National Theatre. Well, I mean, great plays There's always the exceptions to There's always exceptions, rule. that's not... But actually, when you look at whether people are getting involved and the kind of diverse community... I mean, it's still not great. Well, I, no. I, I don't know. I think there's... I think there's a hunger for more direct experiences, though, and I think that that's one of the things that, that stuff like Spoken Word can really mm. benefit from. Like, I think people also want to go to stuff that, like, is independently produced, but is true is real is direct mm. and they're not getting that from a lot of the mainstream art at the yeah. moment so i think that's kind of why i find it exciting being in that kind of milieu at the moment mm. i guess oh god i used the word milieu that's annoying <laughs> it's an incredibly powerful place to be the spoken word i think because yeah. i'm realizing it's 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 everything you can't get on the internet yeah and it's not just spoken one, word as well i think small like you know with low overheads yeah i, I don't think it's just spoken word, or, or at least people are coming to spoken word from so many different avenues they're not mm. all just poetry now mm. uh the storytelling is an exciting thing mm. that's going on out there the the comedy that's is moving more and more towards this idea of uh, storytelling, mm. of, 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 and that's that's it's so exciting to to see people really engaging with that in audiences. And I think um, they long for it. And I think um, as more and more people find out about it, the, 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 that's going to be a big. And, and as some force. assembly takes off, we've got our, we've got preaching. Right. I mean, actual preaching. Right. That's true. In, in a quasi-religious context, yeah. as part of, and a lot of people are doing that. The poets and, and other spoken word artists. So. Right. And comedians as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a the living voice, the living voice in real time. Yeah, is a thing you just can't get on the internet. Right, right. That's that. That's it. And 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 yeah. I mean, and it's it's definitely something that that I've been really feeling more and more like being in the sort of I guess in the scene, whatever that means. Like going to people's shows and yeah. talk, talking to them afterwards is what I mean. <laughs> Uh, that that it's like something that people do have quite a, an interest in, but it take it's going to take a long time for people to find out about it because of the l lack of level playing field. Nobody that's independently minded has got the budget for the mm. advertising yeah. that, that you need in the marketplace. Yeah. Or you could just set up a gig in your living room. That's the. That's what that's what I want to see more yeah. of. Yeah. And I think it's and I I think it's going on. But I think part of the point of that kind of thing is we're never going to find out it's going on because people are just getting together and doing it. But I'd be very surprised. Well, there's a real value in small audiences yeah. as well as big audiences. Everyone's going for the big audiences. Yeah. But some of the you know best nights of my life have been spent in small audiences, having a, a unique experience that will never be repeated. Yeah, and, and the buzz you get off it, I have to say, the buzz you I felt coming down from those living room gigs, coming yeah. off the mic and going backstage was easily as big as anything I've had with, you know... Hundreds of people and big gigs, and yeah. the feeling is the same. It doesn't matter whether it's twelve of your mates in the living room, yeah, or four hundred people in a tent. Yeah, and I think that's the same in the, for for the audience. I think yeah. if it's not just the, the 
the way that the performers are going to feel in that situation. I think it's also a way that the audience can mm. feel. I mean, you seem to be somebody who is interested in the audience experience, mm -hmm. uh, which I am, which I yeah. always like. I mean, I, I do think there are lots of artists that make great art who aren't interested in the audience's mm -hmm. experience, but, you know, I'm not one of them. Well, I think they're <laughs> making them life difficult for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all very well to come up and be kind of aggressive and yeah. kind of. But I think you're you're making a rod to smite your own back with because then because ultimately you've got to get them to like you. Yeah. In fact, no, ultimately that's you've got to get them to want to spend time in your company and yeah. you've got to get them to like you. And okay, it's a great trick to do if you can come on and tell them all to fuck off yeah. and be really aggressive and still turn it around yeah. to the end so that you get, you know, so that they feel that that was a worthwhile 10 minutes of their life or 20 minutes of their life or wherever it was, which is what you have to leave them with. Yeah. You know, there are people who do that kind of conceptual, nihilistic, yeah. but you know, you can't do that. You can't keep doing that. But there are, I know, there are people who think they can. They do, well, also, I think it's it, they can by doing that they can get to a point where they make something interesting. Like that's yeah. the thing. It's like that's what I'm talking about with fringes, the fringes of the arts, really. Mm -hmm. that, that if you don't have people doing weird shit uh, that no one likes, you don't come up with like some of the best uh, stuff that we've got, you know, musically and, mm -hmm. and all sorts of things like that. Eventually, the Last question that I ask my guests is, do you have anything to plug? Which is always a weird one when they're performers, because they always probably do have something, but it's, yeah. Well, uh, funnily enough, my life is a kind of two-speed life. I'm just uh, gearing up for a summer out on the road, taking coach trips, just like on Channel 4, uh, around Europe. So I basically take the summers off. Uh, what I'm going to plug is my blog, www.mackaypoetry.com where I'm going to be posting links to uh, the new popular recite stuff that you, we were talking about earlier on. And I've got, uh, I'm on utter space in the middle of July, where I have been allotted the planet Uranus. Thank you, Richard Torrent Jones, <laughs> to do that. Uh, and I'm planning to travel around quite a lot in the autumn, in October and November, and travel around the UK, which is something I like doing. Uh, so if you get in touch with me at mackaypoetry.com, that would be perfect and look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, I mean, I, I recommend that very, very strongly. Um, yeah, I think that I didn't ask you the, the question of what do you do now. I think earlier on, mm -hmm. so I think that kind of yeah, that that's one of this is one of the rare episodes that I've failed to follow my own format. So there we go. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, what you do now is is that kind of two is, life thing. Is that two life thing? It's seasonal, so uh, starting in the spring. It is very moomins indeed. It's very snufkin. Uh, <laughs> so essentially, I have the winters to poet and write and read and basically not get up uh, bed too early. But the the downside is in the summer, I'm, I'm away traveling for oh eight days, ten days, twelve days uh, with groups of various foreigners, taking them around Britain and Europe and. I've caught you at a moment in your in your busy period where you're just in town for hardly any yeah, time. It is it's just warming up. Uh, so I've got this week off and then pretty much I'm, I'm back for a few days so I can do Utter in July, but I'm pretty much booked up until October. Yeah. So no, I'm... Uh, occasionally, you know, two or three days here, but hopefully not because I've got to work as hard as I can before the summer goes. And I'm really pleased to have managed to grab you and catch you and get better acquainted with you uh, during this, this little window of opportunity. Yeah, it's been it's wonderful. Been great. Yeah. And the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, goodbye. Bye.
Utter Space that James was talking about will be on the 16th of July at the Star of Kings in London and it also features previous GBA guests Richard Tyrone Jones and Musa Okwanga. It's going to be a really great night. I'm going to be there in the audience so there's an opportunity for you to come and get better acquainted with me. If you have downloaded this episode on the 9th of July when it came out, you probably still have time to catch Tragic Misadventures at the Black Heart in Camden, which starts at 7.30. And that's our last London show before we go up to Edinburgh. If you downloaded it later than that, then you've missed it. But don't worry, it comes out on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast, which you can find on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, same as Getting Better Acquainted. Speaking of Stand Up Tragedy going up to Edinburgh, we're going to be there from the 2nd to the 24th of August at the Banshee Labyrinth from 7.30 to 8.30 every evening. And James Mackay will be performing with us on the 18th, so you'll get a chance to hear his take on the tragic as part of a mixed bill of really great acts. So many brilliant performers are going to be with us. Every show, the whole way through the run, will be a different lineup. So it's worth coming, and it's worth coming again, and it's worth coming again, and it's worth coming anytime because it's part of the free fringe, and so it doesn't cost you anything to come and see it. To help support Stand Up Tragedy and to get some great perks in exchange for that support, go over to bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe. As I sort of said in the episode, the independent arts don't operate on a level playing field and your support is a way to help level that field out. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast, on Facebook or on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.